Hello, and welcome to today's VJ Hemonk podcast. We are a global open access video journal, bringing you the latest in hematological oncology. In this podcast series, you will hear from leading experts who share their highlights from the 2022 ASH Annual Meeting and Exposition, which was held in New Orleans, Louisiana. In this podcast, experts Michael Dickinson and Tysel Phillips discuss key updates in non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Topics covered include the updates from the Triangle Trial, the changing role of transplantation, and the growing role of bispecific antibodies. Hello, I'm Michael Dickinson. I'm a haematologist from Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Australia, and I'm here at ASH and with Vijay uh, Hemonk. And I'm Tysel Phillips from the uh, former physician in the city of Hope in Duarte, California. Uh, we're here at uh, Vijay Hemonk at the ASH 2022 uh, hematology meeting. Yeah, and we're going to give our fresh takes on some of the data that we've just seen. We're still digesting and still thinking about it. I guess we'll start by just talking a bit about mantle cell lymphoma. So what, what's, the big, what's the big hit for you? What do you think? So I think the biggest hit uh, the meeting was the plenary discussion with the triangle study. Uh, there was a well-organized study uh, from European countries looking at frontline mantle cell lymphoma. Uh, the triangle study designed uh, a three-arm trial looking at um, our chop uh, with our, our, um, our, uh, our high deck, uh, followed by autologous stem cell transplantation. It was a standard of care arm, and then there was an R-chop with a brood nib, high-dose uh, ARC arm, and then autologous stem cell transplantation. Uh, and then there was another arm um, looking at, I'm sorry, with the second arm, they also had a brood nib maintenance uh, for two years. And then there was a third arm, which was R-chop, a brood nib, high-dose ARC, and then a brood nib maintenance without autologous stem cell transplantation. I think for the last several years, one of the biggest sort of focuses of mantle cell lymphoma was the utility and need for autologous stem cell transplantation. Uh, and at least in this study, the standard of care arm, which did not include any abrutinib maintenance, uh, was deemed to be the inferior of the three arms. Um, and so moving forward, obviously with longer follow-up, we'll look to see uh, if the arm that excluded autologous stem cell transplantation but included abrutinib maintenance. <clears throat> will maintain its equivalent PFS and overall survival with the arm that had autologous stem cell transplantation, or if there's a separation in the curves, because if there is a separation uh, favoring the arm um, that it has the autologous stem cell transplantation, and again, we've just added sort of another treatment, being a brutal maintenance to what we do already, but if the arms do not separate, then potentially we can move away from autologous stem cell transplantation and some of the risks that come with that treatment in frontline mantle cell lymphoma. So this is another study that I guess um, is building a case for frontline use of BTK inhibitors to really modify the treatment paradigm. Do you think it's going to be practice changing? So the, right now, I don't know if we can necessarily make changes to our practice. I mean, given you know the approval uh, is not necessarily in our guidelines, it's not an FDA-approved sort of indication for the BTK inhibitor. Uh, so at this point, you know, I think it's more so uh, cursory that it, probably we can add BTK inhibitors because I, I do think there was some doubt uh, when the Shine study came out whether we would be able to get any benefit by adding BTK inhibitors uh, into the frontline study. But in this younger patient population, it appears that there's some feasibility to that and it may be some added benefit. Uh, but I guess with longer follow-up, we will sort of see how this will play out. And then the question comes, with, at least within the U.S., is what, sort of which BTK inhibitor uh, which should move into the frontline setting. Because as you know, I mean, there's always the controversy of which sort of BTK inhibitor is the safest for the patients. And with having three options, it gives us more sort of flexibility to sort of try to mix and match. So it'll be interesting to see how things play out uh, in the next couple of years. Yeah. 
yeah, we, we don't have access to BDK inhibitors in the front line in Australia either. We use them in the second line and beyond. Um, and uh, it's good also to have that choice now in that, in that setting. Are you still transplanting patients or do patients push back on that idea? So, um we do offer transplants still uh, to some of the patients. Um, I will say for the most part, uh, we've conducted several clinical trials that have sort of excluded out transplant, but for the standard of care patients, yes, transplant has still been the option that we've been sort of referring patients to. And within the U.S., we've also been referring patients to uh, a cooperative group study where they randomize patients who are considered to be minimal residual disease negative uh, by the adaptive clone seek assay uh, to transplant versus just maintenance rituximab. So that study has yet to read out, but Anybody outside of that, yes, we've been still using autologous stem cell transplantation. Yeah. And there's been some um, other data that's come out uh, in the relapsed refractory setting now with mantle cell lymphoma. Any highlights? Yeah, so we did also present the uh, study looking at glofitimab uh, monotherapy in a relapsed refractory mantle cell lymphoma patient population. Uh, smaller study compared to what we've seen with CAR-T patients. So we had 37 patients, uh, most with advanced stage disease. But I think the key takeaway that we saw from this is we still had very good overall uh, efficacy in this patient population. And the safety, I think, uh, compared to what we see traditionally with uh, CAR-T treatment uh, was very, very encouraging. We have very low rates of grade three to four CRS uh, with pretreatment with obinutuzumab with the one or two grams. There was some better data with the two grams of obinutuzumab pretreatment. But we also have very low incidence of ICANs or neurotoxicity. And thus far, it appears that the duration of response is durable, but the follow-up is still very short. It's only 10 months. So yeah. I think we can't really make any firm conclusions of that uh, until yeah. we can get more nice mature data. Rates, more follow-up. Yeah. Do you, what, what do you think about, you know, I mean, I'm an, for, for people watching, I'm an investigator on this trial as well, I should, should reveal. So, um, you know, for me, the response rates were very exciting, um, particularly because patients had, um, many of them had been exposed to BTK inhibitor before. So two thirds of the patients had BTK inhibitor exposure. Um, Ideally, our study, as you know, wasn't necessarily designed to sort of dig in deep into the mantle cell sort of uh, patient characteristics that we normally would do in a mantle cell derived study, but very, very, very encouraging because again, in the post-BTK setting, we don't necessarily have a lot of fundamentally sound data about other agents that are, can give us very durable responses. So quite curious to see how things play out. And speaking of glow-fit map, I mean, ideally there was a very nice presentation by Martin Hutchinson looking at that in large cell lymphomas. Uh, sort of, what do you, you think about that data and how it compares to some of the other bispecifics on the market? Yeah, well, you know, so uh, I'm an investigator on the on the glow-fit-a-map study and, and the pivotal data have just been published uh, just in the last 24 hours while we've been here at ASH 22 in the New England Journal, which we're, we're excited to have out there. Um, and uh, what was presented here at ASH was really a reanalysis of that pivotal data. Uh, asking the question uh, whether patients uh, would retain complete remission. So obviously we were focusing on a subset of patients. We really focused down on those patients where complete remission had been achieved. Because here, a topical question is, uh, should by specifics this new class of agents be given continuously uh, in patients with aggressive B-cell lymphomas or is having a fixed course therapy a defensible approach? And so we wanted to zoom in on whether patients relapsed after fixing, uh, after finishing their fixed course treatment. So glofitimab is given for 12 three-weekly cycles as an intravenous infusion and there's this 
Gazaiva pretreatment, as you've already highlighted. Uh, and so it's a fixed course and patients just stop. And, uh, and uh, in that, it's different from epcaridumab, which is given uh, indefinitely, and ondronextumab, where we've seen some, some further data at this, at this meeting. Uh, th these different companies have taken different approaches to dosing and scheduling in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. What Martin showed in his presentation is that uh, relapse in patients who are in a complete remission at the landmark of end of treatment, um, uh, patients who are in that complete remission, relapse is very, very rare, uh, and so that it is defensible then to stop treatment. And I think that was an exciting finding. You know, obviously we were looking at the best of the best. It wasn't, you know, replacement or really even an update of the pivotal data. It was about asking that question, what can we say to patients who are in a complete remission, who are perhaps coming to their 12th cycle and, and going to stop treatment? Is it safe? And I think that data set was, was quite reassuring. No, I agree. I think it was very, very encouraging in that situation to sort of have that sort of time period of patients off treatment. And I guess another good question for you, long-term follow-up and sort of how that plays out. I mean, given some of the logistical issues we've all experienced with CAR-T, um, it gives give another good option for some of these patients. How do you sort of see that if this data is very mature and plays out, how that folks in and sort of playing with the sequence of the CAR-T treatment? Uh, well, so I think this is gonna be something that is different in different regions around the world, you know, I, and, and it will be different for different treatment settings, I think. I think one of the great appeals of the bispecific agents is their off-the-shelf uh, availability. We see complete remission rates that are within the range of what can be achieved with CAR T-cell treatment in the third line, and importantly, uh, the bispecifics are showing activity in patients who've received CAR T-cell products before. Um, and so very, I think very neatly, I think very confidently we can say bispecifics can be uh, given to patients who've had CAR T cells before, which, are, which is perhaps the current uh, situation where third line uh, CAR T cells are available. And in some regions, second line CAR T cells are available. So bispecifics could, could confidently be used after that, I think, uh, you know, pending future approvals. Um, and then I think there will be some regions in the world where it is just easier to reach for a bispecific than a CAR T cell therapy for, reason, for reasons of reimbursement, status, and, and, and those sorts of things. Uh, you know, and it's, it's hard, and I think it's hard to access CAR T in every setting, and I think bispecifics will slip in there, potentially uh, in the third line in some regions before CAR T cell therapy. And uh, I guess it remains to be seen whether there'll be a role for bispecifics in, in combat. We've just seen a, uh, data from several companies about the combination of bispecifics with uh, frontline chemotherapy regimens. Yeah. I hardly agree. I think the combinability of bispecifics makes it an attractive agent. And I think moving forward, we probably will see it sort of littered in multiple lines of therapy for all our patients. So Yeah, I think so. It's, it feels like a new era uh, for, for patients with aggressive B-cell lymphomas, which I think is... I hardly agree. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Hemonk and subscribe to VJ Hemonk Podcasts on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Until next time.